This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight's program, as you know, has to do with e-cigarettes. Um, and as I was thinking about the program, those of you who attended many of our programs know that most of our programs are talking about technologies or research that's being done for the purpose of something that would be seen automatically as a benefit to society or benefit to humans, uh, a new treatment that might help protect somebody from a disease or a technology that would provide ease of access to information and, and so on. Tonight's focus is a little bit different because there's an industry out there that um, has a history of focusing on a desire, maybe a manufactured desire, but a desire for people, which is to smoke and to use nicotine in cigarettes. Um, that, his, that industry also has a history of some problems in the way they've um, marketed their products and the way they've um, communicated about the safety of their, their products. And e-cigarettes presents a really interesting new twist on this question. Is it a solution to a problem that has that exists and has been created, or is it another version of the same problem, or is it still a very different problem? Um, with that in mind, our um, speaker tonight um, is somebody who's very uh, knowledgeable about, has worked a great deal on questions about um, the use of e-cigarettes in particular, um, and we met in a conversation at UCSD about um, should universities accept funding from tobacco industry? Um, what if the funding is to do research to find out what the problems are with the products, or should they never accept the funding? I won't tell you what the solution was because we were an advisory committee and others make those solution, those decisions, but it's an interesting question. So I want you to um, join me in welcoming our speaker, Laura Crotty-Alexander, um, who is a professor and physician at UC San Diego. Thanks for having me. This is my favorite subject to talk about. Um, I don't have any conflicts of interest, so I have not accepted money from the tobacco industry yet. Um, so uh, our work is funded by the NIH, the VA, and the California Tobacco-Related Disease Research Program. Um, so as you guys might have noticed, there's been a lot in the news about the e-cigarette or vaping device-associated lung injury. It really rolls off the tongue there, e-valley. Um, the number of cases is over 2,200. Uh, it's been found in 49 of the states uh, as well as outside the U.S. now. Uh, and the death toll is up to 47. And so this has really shown a light on you know, what could happen to the lungs, what is happening to the lungs during vaping. So I'm a lung doctor, so I have some strong feelings about the lungs. Um, and this, the lungs evolved to exchange gas. So, you know, for millennia, we've been breathing in air. So nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, that's what the lungs are used to pulling in and breathing out. Um, we, as humans, as we've evolved, we've never been exposed to big clouds of chemicals uh, over and over and over again in the course of the day. So this is a new thing that the lungs have to deal with, and we are finding out what's going to happen in real time. 
And so with that in mind, now we have very young, super healthy people. So this is a young man. He's six foot three. He's 200 pounds. He's a construction worker. Uh, and he came down with this terrible uh, vaping lung injury. Um, and in his lungs, instead of beautiful air spaces that look black on a CAT scan, so this is a CAT scan, these are four different slices, and these beautiful sort of curves on each side, they should be really nice and black, but there's a lot of white stuff in the lungs, and that's fluid and cells that should not be there that were brought in by this process. But to take a, back, a step back, um, there's a lot of words being tossed around. So there's a lot of different devices that are used for vaping. Um, so in the upper left-hand corner, you see the classic electronic cigarette, or e-cig, uh, the vape pen, the mod, the pod device, the jewel, the Soren, and the dab pens. And the reason there's so many different names is that these devices have evolved very rapidly. So the original device was invented in 2003 by a Chinese pharma pharmacist named Han Leek. Uh, and he really did design this to be a nicotine replacement therapy for smokers. He wanted to help people get away from the four to 7,000 toxins that are in cigarette smoke. Uh, and so he designed them to look like cigarettes. So they started off being cigalikes. And then by the time they entered the international market in 2007, they were already starting to evolve. So the vape pen is the second generation device. It doesn't look anything like a cigarette. And then the mod came a couple years later. And the mod is called a modified cigarette, so it's abbreviated mod. It has a huge battery pack so that it can give a very high wattage and really change the delivery of these e-cigarette vapors. And then in 2018, the Juul came into existence, followed rapidly by the Soren. And these are two pod-based devices of e-cigarettes. Something even newer on the scene are the dabbing pens, or wax, or crackle. There's lots of different terms. Uh, and these are specifically associated with the inhalation of THC, or cannabinoids, uh, hash oils. And so this sort of lingo is not very well known uh, across the community uh, as yet. But one thing that the majority of these devices have in common are they have a mouthpiece on this left-hand side here, and right next to that is the tank or cartridge, and that's where the liquid is. And so when I say liquid, all of these devices are designed to deliver drugs. So it can be nicotine, it can be THC, they have ones that deliver caffeine, and they actually have one specifically to deliver different vitamins. So they're called vitamin vapes. Mm -hmm. um, so this liquid is in here in solution, and it gets heated up by this coil. And these coils can be made of a variety of different metals or porcelain, ceramics. And down here is your battery device. So there's lots of different metals, plastic, glasses, along with the chemicals that are inside the liquids. And I just want you to know this because all of these things end up in the aerosol that you then inhale. There's also complex chemistry. So the reason that um, these devices have this chemical in particular, propylene glycol, as the key component of that liquid is it is wonderful at dissolving chemicals. It is so good. We use it in the lab all the time to dissolve all kinds of chemicals. It's just a fantastic solvent. And nicotine is not water soluble. It is very difficult to get it in the solution. But if you put it in propylene glycol, you can get it at very high concentrations. 
And uh, the chemists at Juul actually took that and went a step further to change nicotine to nicotinic salts. They added some benzoic acid, and they were able to amp up the nicotine concentrations even further. But you start with the, these base chemicals, but when you heat them in the presence of just regular air, which contains water, chemical reactions occur and these other chemicals are produced. And so when you're inhaling them, you're not just inhaling the original chemicals in the solution, but almost two to three times as many chemicals actually hit the lungs. They're very popular. So we've seen the, the rates of use of e-cigarettes uh, go skyrocket, especially across middle schoolers and teenagers. So on this left-hand side, we saw a 78% increase in use in high school students, and on the right-hand side, a 48% increase in middle school students just from 2017 to 2018. And why? So we do have some published studies now that really link it to flavor. It's like very appealing. The advertisements have been great, very bright colors, like people looking like they're having fun. And then they put, you know, like Cool Whip or Nilla Wafer here. Um, but they, they are really drawn to the fruity flavors in particular. And other populations are actually uh, more drawn to the minty or menthol uh, flavors. So the industry has been very good at trying to produce every flavor they can so that they can get as many users as possible. So teenagers, they don't tend to smoke at all. So if you ask them if they smoke, they usually will say, no, that's gross, like nobody smokes. But if you ask them specifically about e-cigarettes, you can get very different answers. And then in the top panel here, we have some good longitudinal studies showing that teenagers who use e-cigarettes are much more likely to actually pick up smoking compared to their non-user friends. So we have a 30% rate of e-cigarette vapors who are in their teens who will start smoking conventional tobacco versus just 8% of the non-vapors. And why does this happen? It's thought that they've done some psychological studies here, and if you ask a teenager about smoking when they've never vaped, they say, oh, it's gross, it smells, it's bad for you, like nobody does that. But if they start vaping and you ask them those identical questions you know, a few months later, they don't think conventional smoking is so bad. So their views on inhaling substances changes with the use of that one inhalant. So it's fascinating. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I do find it very fascinating. One other key point in this slide, in the lower right-hand corner, when you ask teenagers what's in those vaping devices, the majority of them, 66%, say just flavoring. So they don't even know that there's nicotine in there, there's THC in there, because 99% of the e-liquids out there for the e-devices have nicotine in them, whether they say that they have nicotine in them or not. So that's frightening. So let's get to what is known about the actual effects of these devices on human health. So as a lung doctor, I've personally seen uh, vaping-induced lung injuries, lung diseases, for years and years. So ever since people started vaping, they have been causing lung disease, um, but the pattern was at very low levels uh, until more recently. So we were seeing things like eosinophils coming into the lungs that shouldn't be there, uh, lipoid pneumonia, acute respiratory distress syndrome. So all of these different diseases were found to be triggered or driven by vaping before this year. 
But now this year, it's sort of skyrocketed. There's this new entity called the e-cigarette, e-device, vaping-related lung injury. And in this, people can present with symptoms that are gradual or acute in onset. And not only do they have difficulty with their lungs, so shortness of breath, coughing, but they are also having abdominal symptoms. So like 80% of people will have nausea or diarrhea or abdominal pain. So it is a unique entity because it is affecting both the lungs and the GI tract. And so it is, uh, we're able to sort of separate it out from these other lung diseases we've been seeing for years because of this unique constellation of symptoms. So the first cases were reported out of Illinois and Wisconsin just a few months ago, and this is another uh, CAT scan just showing that there's a lot of white stuff in those lungs that should not be there, and that's one of the key findings, is that you see these cells and fluid inside both lungs just diffusely. The whole lung is really damaged. But outside of that, we just have a vague definition. So in purple, the CDC said a confirmed case is somebody... A, who admits that they have used an e-device or vaped within 90 days, so that's a very long period of time that they're allowed, that they have these findings in their lungs on both sides, and then outside of that, that they have no other disease to explain this disease. So it's a very loose definition, and so you know, the reason behind that is that there aren't any other key factors. You know, we haven't found anything else to, to tie this disease together. But the bottom line is, is that we're finding this severe lung damage uh, due to uh, vaping. And interestingly and most frightening of all is that the median age is 24. So it's a disease of the very young, ranging from 13 to 75, and 80% of people are under the age of 35. Other interesting characteristics, 70% of the cases are in men, and 86% specifically said that they use THC within these e-liquids, within these devices. So these give us some hints as to what's going on, and the biggest hint being that maybe it is something that is in the liquids uh, where the THC is being mixed. So maybe something is being added specifically to those THC liquids um, that people then heat up and inhale that is driving this. And that might explain why 70% are male if we knew that it was mostly uh, young men who vape THC or dab THC, then that might explain this sort of gender difference that we're seeing. What happens to these people? So we get them into the ICU. We often have to help them breathe. Um, so we have to support them. Um, they often need oxygen, and we discharge them home on oxygen. And the big question is, do the lungs completely heal? Do, do the GI tract uh, organs, do they heal? There have been a couple cases of people uh, needing lung transplants. Um, so in some cases, the damage done during this process is so severe that there is no recovery from it. Um, but there are other cases where people do get off of oxygen and feel like they are back to normal. But because this disease entity happened just in the last few months, um, we really don't have much that we can tell people. We, we hope that this is a completely reversible process and that people can regain everything, um, but we just don't know. 
So what do we know? <laughs> so I've been doing research in this field for about six years. Um, I got into it because I was taking care of patients uh, and they would come in and say, I've tried everything to quit smoking, nothing has worked, I've heard about these e-cigarettes, do you think that I should try them? And I'm like, ooh, oh, e-cigarettes, okay, we know nothing about them. Um, I'm a physician and our mantra is do no harm. Like if I advise them to try an e-cigarette and then it blows up in their face, then I've done them harm. If I advise them to try an e-cigarette and it causes just as much harm to their lungs as cigarette smoking, um, there's just you know, a lot of ethical dilemmas. And so I really didn't feel comfortable uh, advising my patients to use them um, in the absence of any data. But luckily, I'm a mouse researcher and I was sort of set up to be able to expose mice to e-cigarette uh, aerosols to try and find out what the effects on health will be. And what we found out so far is we've tested lots of the different devices, and part of it is going to come down to genetics. So just how in humans, some people can smoke for you know, 80 years and never have any overt you know, problems, um, the same thing is going to happen in e-cigarettes. So even in mice, some strains of mice uh, do very well with e-cigarettes, and other strains of mice end up with lots of lung damage. So genetics will play a role. The type of e-device is going to be important. So some of the devices use very low amounts of electricity, and so the amount of wattage applied to the chemicals is lower, so the number of toxins produced is lower. Uh, and then the e-liquid components themselves. So um, some things, uh, like acrolein, are being added to the e-liquids as a flavorant, and it's known to cause inflammation in the lung and damage. And as you've probably heard, vitamin E has really been uh, become notorious as being found in a lot of the e-liquids and even from the lung samples of the people who are affected by this new uh, e-cigarette vaping illness. And so the vitamin E might be causing the lung injury. We've never studied it in the lungs. It's a huge molecule, so the lungs are not going to like it. Um, but it could also just be a marker of something else that's being mixed into these e-liquids and then inhaled. So we don't have any answers yet, but that is uh, one of the um, red flags out there. So this is just a slide to sort of show you a lot of the different components that are involved in e-cigarette research. So in this left-hand column, some researchers have focused on humans, and they've looked in a human as they're vaping what changes. And then they've also taken human cells, put them in a dish, expose them to e-cigarette vapor, see what changes. And then below that, uh, more of my work has been focused on animals, exposing them in the most physiologic way we can, have them breathe in the vapor made from a real device, and then look all over their body to see what happens. In the middle column, these are things that we have to be really aware of because any single one of those can affect human health. And so if you put nicotine in it, that's going to cause some tachycardia. It can uh, change your immune system responses. So all of these things need to be studied and are in the process of being studied. And finally, in that final column, a lot of the studies so far have just been acute, like one-time exposure, let's see what happens. Or short-term, let's see what happens to humans who vape for a month or a year. We don't have long-term data except in mice. 
So in mice, if you expose them to e-cigarettes for six months, that's the equivalent of you know, decades of exposure. So that's a real opportunity to try and find out what these long-term exposures might cause. And this, I just wanted to you know, say we have found some things. So we found cell toxic effects. We found some effects that are linked to cancer. We found inflammatory effects, so changes of the immune system changes that mean that your immune system is not going to work so well against pathogens, and then physiologic effects. And this is more just to impress on you the amount of work that has been done to date. You know, it's escalating. People are working hard to try and find answers. And the majority of things, uh, they are really coming together to show that every little bit of the lung is affected by the inhalation of e-cigarette vapor from the upper airways all the way down to the alveoli uh, every single cell seems to respond to the vapor in some way. Some of the more um, scary things that we found is that after you expose a mouse to e-cigarette vapor for a few weeks, and then you challenge uh, them with a viral infection, they actually get a worse viral infection and uh, more likely to die. Uh, same thing with inflammation. You challenge them with um, something and they have a lot more of a response. In terms of uh, direct effects, we know that uh, asthmatics, if they smoke conventional tobacco, they get a lot more airway reactivity, they get wheezing, um, and then we know that conventional tobacco causes emphysema. In studies of e-cigarettes, uh, both have been found to occur, and it looks like, again, it's going to be on a genetic basis and based on what exactly is in that e-liquid and what battery it's attached to. There's been a lot of thought put into theoretically why these different chemicals will cause disease because you know people have been studying some of these chemicals for a long time. So in this slide, you'll see in the upper right-hand corner uh, nicotine, uh, which you know has been studied for decades, and we know that it leads to decreased viral and bacterial clearance. It, it impairs your ability to cough, and it activates your airway receptors, which causes your cystic fibrosis TR uh, dysfunction. And these things, as you follow the arrows down, they lead to chronic lung disease. In the upper left-hand corner, these are all the other chemicals that are typically in an e-liquid or the e-cigarette aerosol, such as particulates and flavoring, and that we are learning uh, a lot about those and that those can cause inflammation and airway uh, restriction themselves and thus lead to lung disease. There's been a couple of very uh, hot new research uh, articles that are out there that I just wanted to share with you. This is not how we get our mice to vape, um, <laughs> but I just love that picture. It's very cute. Um, so this group out of uh, Texas uh, exposed their mice to e-cigarette vapor. And what you'll see is these uh, purple cells are the macrophages inside the lungs. So these are the wonderful white blood cells that really roam around your lungs, eat uh, all the bacteria and viruses that we're inhaling all the time, and kills them, wipes them out. And they also eat all the like smog uh, and uh, pollutants, uh, particulates that we're breathing in. So you can imagine that as we're breathing in these chemicals from the e-cigarette vapor, they also eat those chemicals up. And so in this first column, the small purple macrophage is from an air control mouse. The one next to it that's bigger, uh, those mice were exposed to cigarette smoke, so they had to eat up all those cigarette smoke particulates, so they're a bit bigger and darker. 
But the next two after that, those were the mice exposed to e-cigarette vapor with and without nicotine. And those big white vacuoles are uh, evidence of the chemicals that they've had to eat up and that their function is changing. And so they challenged these mice with influenza. And so the top row are the air controls. So they do get inflammation on that right-hand side. But this middle row is our e-cigarette mouse without nicotine. And you see the dense purple lung uh, that happens uh, due to the influenza infection. And then the bottom one is the e-cigarette with nicotine. So this is just a dramatic uh, evidence that when you have the e-cigarette vapor going into the lung over and over and over and over and over again, it changes the immune state so that when you get another hit, like any kind of infection, your response to it is going to be different. And the second study I just wanted to mention is this is the first like, really strong evidence that e-cigarette vaping might lead to lung cancer. So this group actually exposed their mice for a year to e-cigarette vapor. So that's you know, definitely the equivalent of about 80 years of exposure. And in the top row, these are the air control mice. Those mice, about 5% of them developed lung cancer. Whereas the e-cigarette vapor mice without nicotine, none of them developed lung cancer. In that final row, the mice that were exposed to e-cigarette vapor with nicotine developed uh, lung cancer 22% of the time. And so this is really worrisome data that vaping of the nicotine may not be that helpful in protecting you from developing lung cancer. But again, it's one study. Just wanted to mention that I had said that you know lots of studies have been done about asthma, uh, bronchitis. These are all papers that people have published showing that the e-cigarette vapor can drive more symptoms in these respiratory diseases. Here at UCSD, we actually uh, recruit e-cigarette users, vapors from the community, and we've taken blood uh, from them and looked at inflammation to see throughout their body are things changing. And so these are just a bunch of cytokines. We like to look at them because they usually are markers of disease. And in blue are the e-cigarette users, and in the white and black circles are uh, non-smokers, non-vapers. And in general, we just see this shift of inflammation up that's in the circulation. And this is my final sort of data slide. And this is a paper that we just published over the summer. We launched this inhalant questionnaire, and it actually traveled across the world. So that picture of the globe up top, each red flag is an IP address of somebody who took this survey. We had 350 people who completed it fully. And our question was, we know that smoking of cigarettes alters your sleep quality and that women tend to be more susceptible to, than men to some of the nicotine effects. And we just felt like since e-cigarettes often have equal amounts of nicotine or higher than cigarettes, we felt like they probably impact sleep as well. So this questionnaire was designed to ask about inhalant use and then about sleep quality. And interestingly, we found no effects in men, but we found that uh, women had much reduced uh, sleep quality, especially if they were dual users, which means they're smokers and vapors, that they use both. And so this first graph here in the non-smokers, the women are in blue, their sleep quality score was 7.6, and that was about the same in if they only used e-cigarettes or only smoked cigarettes, but the dual users, the score went up to 11. And in this bottom graph, sleep latency is how many minutes it takes you to fall asleep at night. And so women, again in blue, who don't smoke, take an average of 24 minutes to fall asleep. 
Uh, and we saw that move up to 31 minutes with e-cigarette use, uh, conventional tobacco 39 minutes, and then 48 minutes for a dual-use female to fall asleep at night. So we're really worried about that, and we're expanding that study uh, to try and drill down on that. But I just wanted to conclude with, what do we know about e-cigarettes? They will have health consequences. We need more studies in both humans and animal models. You know, different devices and different liquids are going to make a difference on the downstream health effects. There are going to be acute diseases that happen in people who have only vaped for weeks to months, and that's what we're seeing one of right now. And there's going to be other diseases that take time to develop. And genetic susceptibility will play a role. Um, this is my lab, so we have a bunch of collaborators who are awesome. We have a lot of great funding. And then the team on the right does a lot of hands-on-the-ground uh, mouse exposures, and they're fantastic. And this is them at a couple of our holiday parties, so kudos to them. And then in the break, uh, I was going to leave this up. This is our UCSD inhalant questionnaire. So I just showed you that data. That was from the launch from last year. We've revamped the questionnaire to expand to include all the modern inhalants, and we are posting it like everywhere we can. Um, but feel free to uh, take it yourself. Uh, it goes through all of the sleep questions and cough questions as well. Uh, and that's it. Thank you. We're going to start with a couple of questions I have for you based in part on what you were just talking about. And, and the first one is uh, sort of a statistical question. You, you talked before you got into some of the specific research you're doing about a study where they... Um, looked at people who had reported having used a vape product within the last 90 days and had lung injury, and we're drawing a connection between that, thinking that's the case. But it seems that there's a really important piece of data one would want, which would be how many people had not used a vape product in the last 90 days and had lung injury? What's the difference between those two groups? Do you know? Um, we don't see many cases of uh, idiopathic lung injury where there's absolutely no inhalant, no exposure. But it can happen, um, and thus it's very difficult to uh, really have a clean group of patients who we all feel very confident are vaping-induced lung injury. Um, it is a very fuzzy definition um, because how do you test somebody for their vaping exposure? Like, how can you say, all right, this vaping exposure was enough and recent enough that, you know, it definitely is driving this, causing this disease? Um, so we don't have markers for that. So, yes, a lot of people are uncomfortable that if somebody says that they vaped 89 days ago and then they come in with lung injury, they meet the definition if they have all the other criteria. But do we really think that an exposure 89 days ago um, is causing what they're in the hospital for now? Um, so it's, it's not a great definition. Uh, the CDC is actually working hard to try and modify it as more and more data comes in. Um, so I'm hoping that we have a little bit more of a clearer definition uh, that they have to meet at least a certain amount of vaping uh, quantity and timeline uh, to be defined as a vaping lung, lung injury case. I, I have to comment that you could take everything you said and instead of saying vaping, say cigarette use and the difficulty of making correlations between cigarette use and something like lung cancer, 
which, as I understand it, the reason it took so long to provide convincing scientific evidence was because of the very issues you just brought up for vaping. How much exposure, when, um, other factors that might be going on in someone's life. And now one of those other factors is cigarette smoking that might interfere with vaping. So it's really complicated. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very messy. So in theory, um, you can simplify that messiness by studying animals. And I, there, are, there are two thoughts that go through my mind about the use of mice as a model. The first one is the general thought, of the worry, that really often we've found that animal models don't really parallel well enough to predict what will be true in humans. And the second thing is, um, my recollection on this is that in rodents, mice included, that often they will um, be able to sustain a much higher dose of something without consequences than humans. And I don't know whether you have insights into either of those questions. The no, I, I think you're absolutely right, and we, we worry about the same things. Um, you know, mice are not humans. Their immune systems alone are very different uh, than humans. Um, so uh, our approach to it has really been to expand into human subjects. And so I used to be a mouse researcher, and now I'm both, um, because I really feel like anything that we find in the mice, we need to look and make sure that that's what we're seeing in humans. And that then gives us guidance to be like, okay, so we're seeing it in humans too. Let's go back to the mouse because now that model looks like it is close enough that it, we can use it to give guidance in humans. So yes, we did a couple years of work in mice and then we recruited um, 20 e-cigarette uh, users and tested them over time. And the changes in their uh, airway secretions and in their blood, we found parallel changes in these different types of mice we had exposed. So that made us feel a little bit more comfortable with using the mouse as a model. Um, but more recently, we actually got funding to do a non-human primate study, which is a whole different set of ethical problems. I've never wanted to work uh, in rhesus macaques. Um, it's just, blah, just not a good feeling. Um, yeah, but on the other hand, they are so much closer to humans. Um, it's also very difficult to do pediatric research so all of our human subjects are over the age of 18, and definitely going forward, that's going to be even harder to do uh, anybody who's younger. Um, so the non-human primates uh, are another opportunity to have them breathe in e-cigarette vapor and look for changes that are likely to be much closer to that seen in humans. But again, we're working with non-human primates, so that's difficult for me. Yeah. Uh well, and for many people, I mean, there's a lot of challenges to ever use non-human primates. Um, so I am presuming that, um, that as with cigarettes, that a high, for a high percentage of people in effect have an addiction that it's very hard to break, that there's a craving for that nicotine, and that's true of vaping as well? Do we know... Absolutely. So, of course, the e-cigarette the e companies um, said that their products were not addictive, that there was no proof that it was addictive, which as a 
doctor who knows how addictive nicotine is, I'm like, that is so silly. But that did drive us to actually have to do the studies to prove that vaping uh, inhalation of the e-cigarette aerosol activated the addiction pathways in a way that shows that there's addiction. So we published that work just so, you know, we've proven that e-cigarettes activate the same reward pathways that are tied with addiction. Um, but the more strong uh, information for me really came from the college kids in my lab. Um, and a lot of them, you know, are in their fourth year or having even graduated. And they remember in their first and second years, they would go to parties. And instead of passing around uh, alcohol uh, or a cigarette, people were passing around the jewels or the nicotine delivery device. And that was the thing to do at the parties, was take hits uh, off of these nicotine devices. And they started doing it you know, in their first or second year. And then they ended up buying their own device. And then they're graduating from college, and they're realizing they can't quit and that they have this addiction, and that it is a really hard thing for them to realize that something that started as something they just did at parties, and they thought was just a college thing, and now they're completely hooked. Yeah. So, and that leads to the question I have, which is, do the mice also want to self-medicate? Do they, are, and I mean, so what are you, are you looking at that as well? So. The, the C57 Black 6 uh, mouse does like nicotine. Um, it's well known that uh, they are the ones that like cigarette smoke too. So after the first couple of exposures where it's hard to get them into the exposure system, they'll run in, they're, like, they're waiting to be able to go get their hit. Um, so the same thing is happening with the e-cigarettes, but the CD1 white mice, which is an outbred strain, they do not like it. They do not tolerate it. They get like the shakes at the doses that we give the black mice. So we think that their nicotinic receptor patterns are very different, um, and they actually get the nicotine toxicity at very low doses. So uh, there's genetic differences, just like in humans. Some humans can smoke you know, for a few years and quit, never have a real addiction, and others, you know, smoke a couple cigarettes and, like, can never quit. Well, then, I mean, I'm going to start with the assumption that you may be concerned that people are vaping and you'd like to stop that. So is, is, I mean, are you looking at or is somebody looking at the difference between these two different genetic strains to see why is it? I mean, this must have been a question with, with cigarette smoking, too. I mean, why is there a difference? Yeah, and I'm not an addiction specialist, so I'm not really set up to do that work. Um, but I think that is a good point. And uh, now I have a couple of collaborators who are specialists. So actually, I'm going to email them yeah, and mention enough. that we know this difference in case they want to um, be able to look at that. I would be astonished if somebody isn't looking at it. But as you said, that it occurred to me that's got to be a question. So one of the, you know, there are a variety of questions that we try and ask around ethics and science. and. And one of the more fundamental questions is to be sure um, you understand exactly what it is. What is the technology? What are the issues that are being raised? And so the first question at the top of the pile is a what is question. So what is popcorn lung? Oh, yes. Popcorn lung. Um, so popcorn lung is actually bronchiolitis obliterans. Uh, it's a type of inflammatory lung disease um, where these tiny airways in the lung um, end up having too many cells around them and they get narrow. Um, so people end up getting very short of breath. <clears throat> the name, the namaker came because uh, people who used to work in microwave popcorn factories were exposed to acrolein, and acrolein was used in the microwave 
popcorn industry to create the butter flavor. So they would add the acrolene uh, to the popcorn kernels uh, so that they would get coated with it and that you'd have that beautiful smell uh, and taste of butter when you ate them. But the people who worked in the factories were breathing in these very high levels of the acrolene and would develop popcorn lung. Um, so that's where the name came from, even though the disease is actually bronchiolitis obliterans. Um, it also happened to a couple of people who were eating about 40 bags of popcorn <laughs> per day. You can look it up. And they sued the microwave popcorn uh, company. I think they won. I was like, <laughs> you can win any kind of lawsuit. <laughs> Which is now when you buy popcorn, you see that warning label that says, do not eat more than 35 bags a day. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tie to e-cigarettes is that acrolene is this um, wonderful flavor. <laughs> So it really gives this buttery flavor, and so that's why it's being added to the e-liquids, um, because it gives this wonderful buttery flavor. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of the e-liquids out there have it, um, so bronchiolitis obliterans is happening, and people who are vaping those liquids with that chemical in it. But it tends to take a while to show up. Mm, okay. So... Uh the next question is one that I'm not sure is your expertise, but I think it is an important thing to think about if we were worried that, uh, about vaping and we're saying that this should be stopped. If regulations were put in place to um, say it is no longer legal to sell vape products or devices, um, the question is if devices were banned, would it be easy to produce them and sell on the black market? And if so, could they be more dangerous? And I think that's a rhetorical question. No, I, I think that's a really important point, and I don't know the answer, but I do worry about it because, I mean, vaping is here to stay. I mean, people are using it. They will always find a way. Um, mo you know, a ton of the devices come from China uh, to begin with, and... Like in Australia, they have never allowed uh, nicotine in the e-liquids. So anything that is manufactured or sold in Australia, it cannot have nicotine in the e-liquid at all. So how do Australians get their e-liquids? They order them online from <laughs> other countries and they get shipped in and the packages aren't labeled. So, you know, they can easily get them. Um, so, yes, I, you know, I think that banning it will lead to people getting the uh, devices and the liquids from elsewhere. Um, and that, I would guess, would be li more likely that they would use uh, less safe devices and less safe uh, e-liquids. So yeah, I'm not convinced uh, that's an answer. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll come back maybe towards the end about more some options for answers. Um, the next question is about something I don't know about, so hopefully it means something to you. But um, they said, could you comment on studies in the UK that have used a smaller concentration of nicotine, and apparently also on the vitamin E acetate method of delivery? Can, do you know about either what um, you're referring to? And actually, I forgot the, the whole banning of stuff. It, it is reminiscent of prohibition, you know? Like, yeah. it's a, if you just yeah. tell an adult they're not allowed to do something, they're going to figure out a way. So. Um, but yes, back to this. So in England, so in Australia, they don't allow any nicotine at all. In England, they are limited. They limit the nicotine concentrations to be less than 20 milligrams per mil in the liquids. Whereas in the United States, we don't have those limitations. So in the Juul device alone, the concentration is 59 milligrams per mil of Juul in the Juul. 
And so you would imagine that taking a hit off of a Juul device um, gets a much higher level of nicotine in your bloodstream and to your brain activating the reward pathways compared to if you're taking a hit off of one that's less than 20 milligrams per mil. Um, so that actually might be one of the reasons why uh, in Britain they haven't seen quite the surge in youth vaping. Um, just because they have such a lower level of nicotine, it's going to have, you know, take longer to get addicted and kids might not find it as appealing because the high that they get is not as high. Um, in terms of uh, other components in there, I don't know much about it, but um, they do sell a lot of the same devices and a, a lot of the same liquids just with the less uh, nicotine in there. The, the vitamin E, um, we still don't know why it is being added to the e-liquids. It seems like it's primarily being added to the THC liquids and it could be added to make it thicker. So as I mentioned, the vitamin E is a very large molecule um, and a lot of times for the THC substances that are called crackle or dabs, they um, are very thick, like almost waxy. And um, dealers, when they sell it, uh, it's a very high concentration of THC, which is the active, uh, the biggest active chemical in marijuana. Um, they want to try and get away with um, selling somebody less THC in there so that they could spread it out more. So one of the things that is happening is that they're cutting the uh, uh, highly concentrated THC with other substances which have the same consistency. So when people like test it out, they're like, oh yeah, it's nice and thick, so this is a very high concentration um, THC. So it's possible that vitamin E and other things are being added to sort of replace um, things, kind of like cutting uh, heroin with other chemicals that then end up uh, killing people. Um, so that's one concept of why. Another concept is that maybe because it's such a big chemical, it can make a bigger cloud or give a different mouthfeel or it adds a flavor. So these are all different reasons that chemicals are added to um, substances that are then heated and aerosolized. Okay, great. So um, if, if I've done my best to read between the lines of everything you've said, it sounds like there are a lot of lines of evidence that all seem to suggest that vaping is at least as worrisome as cigarette smoking. Um, is, that, is that a fair summary? Of I think it's a fair summary. And um, I mean, cigarette smoke is so bad and it's caused so many health effects that when I entered the e-cigarette field in 2013, you know, I really felt like e-cigarettes had to be better. Um, you know, how could they be worse than cigarette smoke? Um, but every year with more and more um, data coming out of human studies, animal studies, and then just things that we're seeing in the population, um, I've gotten more and more fearful uh, of the consequences and really been surprised by the dramatic changes that we're finding from the breathing in of these aerosols. Um, so I've become less and less convinced over time that it was a, that it is a healthier alternative, um, and it has its own threats to human health. So a couple years ago, those threats are mainly explosions, uh, fire burns um, that were happening, um, and right now it's this uh, E Valley crisis. Um, but that is like the acute dangers. 
what we're seeing in some of our chronic studies is all the effects on the cardiac system, on the vessels, on the brain, on the kidneys, uh, on the liver. So it's actually really surprised me um, about the extent of damage that we're seeing uh, from the e-cigarette vaping. Okay, so um, one of the, the challenges from an ethical perspective and from a regulatory perspective is how we deal with uncertainty. We aren't absolutely certain if somebody said, guarantee to me that e-cigarettes are worse than cigarettes or even as bad. I, I also suspect you're not prepared to say that. It's just that there's a likelihood that they are worrisome. So um, what I thought we might do is, um, Laura came up with a few questions in advance that we might ask of the audience. And I thought we might ask you not to break into small groups, but to pair up somebody sitting next to you, or if nobody's sitting next to you, you can talk to yourself. Um, and the question is about regulation. So at this point, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, regulation is pretty much non-existent on vaping products. We're pretty close to no level of control. And, it, and it's changing rapidly. Yeah. So the FDA has tried to regulate it for years and years and years, but the tobacco industry is extremely powerful and has shut them down every time. But yeah, on the city and state level, like bans are going into place, like regulations are flying off the walls. And you know, I actually was asked to go and speak in front of uh, the Board of City Council or something like that, the people in control of the regulations for San Diego County. And I found it very awkward because I was basically trying to answer this question, um, but they really wanted either a yes or a no. Okay, so you get to try and figure out what to do with this problem. Um, you are the committee. Talk to your neighbor. And the question is, should we be thinking about regulation to deal with vaping products and devices now? Um, and if we should, what would that look like? And you have two minutes to solve that. <laughs> In the decades-long run-up to control of, you know, regular nicotine in cigarettes, first they said, no, 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 you know, nicotine's not bad for you and all that. And then over time, so much evidence built up that says, yes, it is pretty bad for you. So then they switched gears and say, well, it's a personal freedom thing. If a person wants to smoke, then you can do that. And then came secondhand smoke. And first they said, well, that was baloney too, but, you know, eventually that became an issue. So, but... With secondhand smoke, now it's no longer personal freedom. And so I've seen ads on bus benches that, that say, you know, exhaling from, from uh, vaping is just as bad as secondhand smoke. Nicotine is nicotine. Do you know anything about that? Is that just a political thing or it's really as bad? Yeah. Um, so, you know, our work on primary exposure to e-cigarette vapor is still in its infancy. Um, so the work on secondhand smoke is like very small so far, um, but some small studies where you put a human uh, vapor in a room and put another human non-vapor in there with them uh, and then check their blood levels, um, you know, their nicotine levels rise just like they would be in a room with a cigarette smoker. Um, so even though with an e-cigarette, the first pass does go into your lungs, so the second pass has always come in contact with somebody else's surfaces, <laughs> airway surfaces. Whereas with a cigarette smoke, you have the side stream, so it's always burning. So the cigarette smoke coming off at the end of the cigarette as you're just holding it is full octane cigarette smoke. Um, and so there was, you know, some hope that the, again, the secondhand cigarette smoke would have higher numbers of chemicals compared to an e-cigarette. 
Um, there's also tertiary exposure. So cigarette smoke, um, it disperses. So if you watch somebody smoking, it is a smoke. It goes up and out and away. But an e-cigarette vapor is an aerosol, which means that there's droplets in there. And so when you look at a cloud of vapor, it sinks and then it coats the surface. So when we expose our mice, like it's disgusting and I make sure everybody wears gloves because the solvents make it so the nicotine can cross your skin. And actually some of the e-liquids have warnings on there, you know, please God, don't let the e-liquid touch your skin, but go ahead and inhale it. <laughs> so it's just really funny. Um, but a lot of parents who switch from smoking cigarettes to vaping, they used to smoke outside. But now they're vaping on their couch, and their kids are on the floor. And so this vapor sinks down, coats the floor, the baby crawls across it, comes in contact with all those chemicals that cross over their skin. So the tertiary exposure is very dangerous, and we try, and one of our big party lines is make sure that all parents understand this. Um, and then the secondary exposure is really breathing it in from somebody else exhaling it. A lot of work needs to be done, but there are signals showing that you do breathe in the stuff that that person's exhaling. It, it will have an impact. Okay, and your question now and your answer now prompts a question that is a somewhat mean question, but that's my job. <laughs> and that's so, do you check nicotine levels in your research team to see whether they're oh. being affected by the products? No, because I feel that it's unethical to ask them what their personal habits are. Well, I, I mean in terms of whether it's... So you I want to find some way to, to look at whether there's a change. Because if they vape at yeah, home, okay. and then they come in and expose mice, and I check them, and their cotinin level, which is the byproduct, is elevated, I wouldn't know. I'd have to know what they inhale. And I just feel I don't want to ask them like they, you know, do you vape nicotine? Do you dab THC? It just feels wrong. Well, that, that's that's <laughs> a very good. It's a good ethical question. If somebody can think of a way to do that without <laughs> violating their privacy, then that would be good to know. Next. Hi. So um, I'm a high school teacher and I'm here with a couple of my high school students. Um, and in talking with them, they're talking to me about how this is becoming just endemic. It's all across the school. Uh, they, they vape out in, in, in the open because they, it's very, very difficult for the um, adults there to control it. And the sense is, is that teenagers don't really understand that it's harmful at all. So for me, the regulation, my question is, the government it's pretty clear that nicotine is addictive, it's damaging. You have these chemicals that they know can do damage from other research. How did the companies get away with putting together these products into something that was not regulated by the government in the first place? I'm not saying it should be banned, but how could they allow it to be advertised how could they be allowed to have it be advertised in this way? And why isn't there a huge public service campaign to get that information out? So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Full agreement. Um, I actually have a collaborator at San Diego State um, who collaborates with somebody else who actually goes to the different schools and they go through the trash because it's hard to get the um, evidence that you know, students are using these devices, what devices, what are they inhaling, 
but they do tend to throw away empty pods. Um, and so just by going through the trash at a school, they can estimate the use patterns uh, for that school. Um, so I thought that was pretty sneaky. Um, you know, I thought that was a really clever idea. Um, I think they got into it because in this uh, era of you know, trying to protect our world, these uh, e-cigarettes, um, the pods are plastic and metals, uh, and they're, a lot of them are not reusable. So like the jewel pods, people use them and they tend to dump them. Um, and so increasing trash and waste uh, across the land. In terms of why they weren't regulated, um, you know, I am not a regulatory person, so this is just all stuff that I've picked up from being in the field. Um, first, you know, like when we talked about it, it's like, well, like when it comes to alcohol, you know, it's, it's a personal choice, um, and how long does it take before something is recognized as dangerous enough that you like shut it down? I, most people feel like they're reliving history, that all of those commercials and ads from the 1950s and 60s, you know, they are exactly, you know, what we're doing now. Um, there are some big uh, campaigns that are, um, you know, they think working, um, but when you talk to um, adolescents, you know, they interact with the world in a different way than 40 plus year old people. Um, so I think one of the ways that they are trying to improve the targeting is by involving adolescents in these plans of how to reach the youth. Um, so Instagram, uh, making little videos and putting them on TikTok, I think is the name of it. <laughs> um, I had to look this up because we just submitted a grant to try and improve outreach. Um, and, you know, most of them don't use Facebook. Uh, it's Instagram, it's TikTok, it's Snapchat. Um, and so those are ways. And so we were talking to a couple of teenagers and we were like, well, how could we reach teenagers? And it was like, if somebody cool posted it that you liked, would you watch it or listen to it more? And some of them would say yes, other ones said no. If it was a friend of mine, then I might watch it or listen to it. An added level of difficulty, if you tell a teenager something's dangerous, they're more likely to do it. So they have a psychological attraction to danger. Um, so they did beautiful studies where they showed uh, teenagers, you know, these horrible signs saying that cigarette smoking was bad and they caused lung cancer and emphysema and showed pictures of emphysematous lungs. And the teenagers uh, increased their buying of cigarettes when that ad campaign went into effect. So there are multiple problems with trying to help protect our youth, and I don't have the answers. I think a lot of us are really upset that the companies were allowed to target them so aggressively for such a long period of time. Um, they actually, Juul in particular, they got Juul users to be influencers. So um, you know, kids and celebrities that they admired would post on um, Twitter, uh, Instagram, you know, that they enjoyed the jewel and they would post these positive mes messages about it. And that really increased uh, Jewel's um, pattern of use. It just, you know, exploded. So they're way more savvy than we are. It would actually be great if we could get the people who drove those campaigns to switch sides <laughs> and help us out. Yeah. And that's probably a good place to end because we've reached 7 o'clock. So I want to thank um, the audience for their participation and their questions. I want to thank you for an interesting presentation. Thanks. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.